Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community, or join both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainer Sander Durr and his guests in an all-new episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you're tuning in. Welcome. Good morning, Jim. From Ohio, it's 8, for having me. 8 a.m., but most importantly, welcome, Serge. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. How are you doing? Fine. Well, for us, of course, it's the middle of the day, so I had a training because I trained all, all our consultants, right? The new consultants, so I had a morning of training. And, of course, uh, this evening, we're going to have our knowledge exchange, which is knowledge exchange, fun, beer. Yeah. Beer. Good times. Good times, beer. beer. Yeah. Definitely beer. Definitely that. Today, we're talking about sociocracy. Yeah. 3.0. 3.0, yes. 3.0. Jim, how familiar are you with sociocracy? Uh, you know, I've done some reading on it. Uh, I would say I am probably a newbie on it. So I am really excited to learn from, from Serge and just soak it all in. And maybe if I can ask a smart question here or there, I will. But I'm definitely not an expert. Oh, sweet. So this is going to be a learning session for you as well. Uh, same for me. I don't know that much. I know you're super passionate about sociocracy. Um, you've been spamming me a lot about it, but I still do not know the details. As well, we have an audience joining us virtually. Uh, we'll get some questions in here. Um, we're getting some feedback that the studio has been audible very fine, so that's good to know. Okay, cool. Sweet. You want to kick it off? What? Tell, tell us what sociocracy is all about and yeah. what makes you so passionate about this. Yeah, so um, sociocracy in a general sense sort of fits within a family of methods, frameworks, you know, give it a name, um, which includes the old sociocracy, which now people, um, the acronym they use is SCM, sociocratic circle method. Uh, holacracy is, of course, a very famous version of it. Um, which was, you know, people like a, a company like Zappos that did it, like they, they were all in the news. And nowadays there was also, so Sociocracy 3.0 uh, with people like, you know, James Priest and Lily David and so on. They they um, created that version, have a lot of experience with it. And there are some other variants of it. There is also, I'm blanking on that. I think it's Sociocracy for You, I think they're called. They're based in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And they also have like little tweaks. And so, so, but overall, I'd say there's enough similarities that if you're really new to the field, there's enough commonalities there that any one of those methods sort of, they, there are some basics that you need to grasp for that. Now, what makes me excited about it is, um, let's take the most relatively extreme case, like this, the safe framework, right? So we build in teams that have internally they have flexibility you can do kinds of things you have a product owner team determines the how and all that all that good stuff now but that is from the framework perspective the framework itself is fixed right the framework itself is okay this is how you do it this is how the structure works etc so there's some interesting aspects that come with but what if you also make that framework or that structure flexible as well what if that is also by the people? Because if you're talking about sociocracy, then you say the power is in the group. So for me, one of the things, the direct uses I have of it is to structure organizations and to also th- think of the, for me, sort of the next step of Agile is going to be, what if the governance is also Agile? What if people own the structure as well? 
And what if, for instance, we are both uh, team members in a different team, and it turns out that the responsibility that I have or our team has doesn't really fit very well and actually would sit better with you. Now, normally you'd need a manager for it, right? Or some person in power because they control the structure, they control the organization. So what if that wasn't there? What if you had a set of tools, agreements, and a way of working that would allow us between ourselves within sort of a good framework of agreements to say, hey, let's hand over this responsibility from me to you. So that gives some all kinds of interesting implications, right? It would mean that not only would you get sort of that normal agile thing of the team knows how to do it, and therefore they go towards whatever sort of, you know, the, the vision is or the product vision in their own way, but they can even restructure the organization they need to get there. This sounds almost... I, I'm not going to go into common sense, but it sounds like this could be super powerful, yet I've never come across any organization that has employed sociocracy as you're describing it like this. Why, yes. why is that? Because there are some techniques and things we need to learn that actually we should have learned from in school. In, in So one of the other things that is also associated with this type of methods for long is consent decision-making. Which is very important. And f just an example, if we are a group of friends together and we want to go out on a dinner date together, like a whole group, like a group of friends, and we're saying, okay, let's, uh, let's have a movie and let's go eating. So what happens then is that none of us is each other's boss. And still we sort of get to agreement. How does that happen? And there's sort of different ways to go about that, right? One of them could be, well, one of them is obviously the, the, the group leader for some reason, then they determine, well, that's the autocratic method. The consensus model, model is the other one. Like we only move if everybody agrees, right? So uh, when only one person says, I don't agree with that, oh, I don't like the movie, nothing happens. So it has the advantage of having everybody heard, but it's very limiting in the sense of like, you know, only one person has to say no and nothing moves. Now, so consent decision-making as a technique sort of sits there in the middle and says, okay, uh, I'm going to give you, Sonder, as a, as a group, we agree, we're going to give you the power to decide. So that means uh, we all agree, what's the budget? The budget, okay, 50, 50 euros. Okay, budget is 50 euros. Okay, uh, movie, you know, anything about genre and everybody agrees about like, yeah, something like science fiction would be cool uh, or some, you know, a Pixar movie kind of a thing. You know, within those boundaries, fine, do your thing, go. And you go out and arrange. The interesting thing that happened was that the authority that vested the power in you was not something from outside, from above. There was not a, it was the group defining the role and saying, you are now getting a role that has the responsibility and therefore also the power to say when, the, the, what restaurants, what power, etc. within sort of the constraints the group gave you. That all happens very naturally, right? So many of these things we already do. Now, here's the trick also, with especially with consent decision-making, is that uh, whereas consensus, it's a no unless everybody agrees, mm -hmm. consent decision-making, the default is a yes, unless somebody can come with a reason it should be a no. So the burden of proof is reversed. So if I want to do a thing, or for instance, in this case, you, know, you, you propose a movie, and it's the, by default a yes. And if I don't like the movie, I have to come with very valid reasons why, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. And this is very subtle but powerful because it means that a lot of sort of the people who want to block a thing, they can't just go like, nah, I don't like it. And then the burden of proof lies with you to convince me that the movie is good. Just because I'm an asshole, right? And I say, nah, I don't like it. That's true. 
But how do you prevent like <laughs> someone with a super dominant voice and a super dominant position, if you will, in such a group? Try to overpower that because he's tried to yeah. prove you wrong, basically. Try to prove the opposite. Like, this is a bad choice. We should not be doing that. Yeah. But just because he is the loud minority, yeah. therefore, so, we're not going to so here it. you go. So the whole method, way of working, sort of that style of decision-making, it comes with a bit of experience, craft. Even now, I don't feel totally comfortable in teaching people how to do consent decision-making. Because even for me, I feel that, you know, I don't have enough experience. I feel just a little bit, you know, un uncomfortable with it. So even though I, I know what to do and I've done it, I've done some, but there is a there is a naturalness that everybody has to share. And that's also one of the things that makes it somewhat, I think, problematic in its adoption nowadays, is this is sort of like a core social technology that we all would need to know to be able to do it correctly. Because it does know that everybody knows the rules, the rules of the game. So, for instance, that burden of proof, if I come with an objection, because that's what we call it, right? An objection. And if it's valid, it sort of has to be tested for validity. And then uh, when, and so what you can also say is that, uh, at least the way James Priest uh, voiced it, is that it's primacy in reasoned argument. So it's not the dominance thing. It is, does your argument, so they hold true. And sort of they get tested against the thing, like, okay, does this hold true? The interesting thing also, if I have an objection, for instance, I don't know, I say, well, um, yeah, I just don't like the movie, the, the title, I don't like it. And then somebody else, could be you, could say, I have an objection to your objection. Yeah. And then sort of, and sort of you can go all, you know, nested on that and you can go, uh, and, and again, I've also learned that sort of when you nest four deep and also an experienced moderator is able to untangle that pretty quickly and go like, okay, you know, you're here, we're there, okay, that's there, you're, and they moderated pretty quickly towards a resolution. Would you then say that on inexperienced moderator would not thrive well in such a setting. Yeah, it's, and it takes a bit of buy-in from the group itself, right? They, they have to buy into it. So there is that. And, but I do think that once I've seen it work, for instance, when James Priest, when I've done the courses with, with him and Lily, and when he moderates it, it's just insane to see how fast it goes. It's not funny. It's just go boom, 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 boom. And he just drives like, and there's like five decisions to be made. And those things get made and you, you're sort of looking in hindsight, we made five decisions and it's like done in like maybe five or 10 minutes. And you go like, how did we do that? Like what happened here? And so, but there's a naturalness to the way he does it and sort of making sure, okay, that's your turn. And so that was very, very good. And there was also things that the way people need to buy into it. For instance, a very typical thing is sort of these rounds of uh, feedback that you give. Yeah. Like the first one is just general feedback the, or clarifying questions. Now, it takes a bit of discipline to not use the clarifying questions around to make your point. To actually say, oh yeah, um, but don't you think that, right? That's not a question, right? That's putting your opinion in the form of a yeah. question. And there is a lot of that. I also seen a lot of that with people I was working with, et cetera, or even yourself. You're so passionate about a thing that you immediately start putting your opinion into things. And so you have to have the discipline with every round. Now, no, this round is only for clarifying questions. And to trust the process and trust the process, it will come around to you by the time you can get, okay, do you have an objection? Yes, I do. And sort of phrase that and state that. Once you've mastered those things, however, it becomes super powerful. So you get some s several concepts that for me at least, make the whole thing fly. The first thing is this consent decision making because you need that as an alternative to an authoritarian power figure. How do we make decisions if no one has power over each other? No. It's a core skill we need. The second thing is very important is given that 
the thing you do is therefore negotiable, just like we I had in the example of the uh, the the you know the the night out. We constructed a role for you on the spot. So apparently there is a thing that lives outside of you as a person or outside your job function that is a role or a domain, as you would say it then in sociocracy in in, in, uh, in holacracy they call that a role. Uh, which is a definition of here is a set of responsibilities, here is a set of like, it's sort of like a chunk of responsibility and power. It gets defined. It's its own thing. Essentially, it's a hat, right? Yeah. If you want to make it sort of a, a physical analogy would be a hat with a whole bunch of stickies on it that describe what the hat is, what the wearer of the hat is or is not allowed to do, what their responsibilities are, etc. And the whole notion that this is transferable. That's another thing I've seen that is so many times, if I got a euro for every time a person says role to me, but they mean function, I would be a rich man. Yeah. Now looking at Jim as well and, and to the group in general, take any agile framework that we've been working with so far and there's any implication of change that goes into resistance quite often, right? People are changing their accountabilities, changing the thing that they have to do, whether that's becoming a scrum master or an agile leader or whatsoever. Usually there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to this, like what I'm expected to do in this new situation, what's going to change for me, how does this look like? Mm -hmm. But now looking at sociocracy, we're basically saying, we don't know what we're doing, who's going to do what. How do, you, how do you see this going down in any environment, any consulting gigs that you do? where the role that you're going to play or the function that you have is sort of open. Yeah. So um, yeah. this is similar to Kanban in the sense that the Kanban as a change method says, start where you are. That's all you need to do. So in the technique, at least when in social 3.0, there is a canvas uh, called a delegation canvas. I've made my own sort of tweaked version to it. I made it a bit more like agile, and scrum oriented because like something like a definition of done isn't there although it's a very useful domain modeling tool because the definition of done very strongly defines the constraints of what your team is and is supposed to be where, is it, where does the team end sort of right and also the definition of done implies the skill set that you need so there's so there's interesting information now that's not in the standard one so i added it stuff like that so but that's the delegation canvas you can just look it up on sociocracy 3.0 you just go to the canvases and it's it's all there right it's just free to download and in so doing you then ask all the teams the domains or the teams of teams because this is a nested concept right if you have a teams of teams of teams of teams every one of those could be a canvas even the whole company and so the first thing you do is describe everything so that everything is clear that in and of itself is a really interesting exercise because in many cases you'll find that certain responsibilities are orphans. Nobody is actually doing them. There could be overlap. There could be expectations that aren't very clear because there's dependencies between those teams. And as you're describing them, you sort of set it up at least for that discussion. So once it's described what it is right now, and you have sort of tools like things like the consent decision making, which is not necessarily the biggest thing you need there, but it's one of the ways to do it. Then you can go have a discussion around, okay, hmm, does it make sense that this responsibility is here or should it be somewhere else? Yeah. And then you can start sort of, and that's where the governance layer comes in because one of the things those sociocratic methods therefore have, normally you only have your operational meetings. They all function within the constraints of the current organization that's given. You sort of assume when you do a daily standup, you're not gonna talk about, let's change the team structure. That's not something you normally do. Uh, so it's, it's not expected, it's not built into the system. So there's a whole layer of techniques 
and events and things like that that specifically go into it and go like, okay, we've been operationally doing this. Let's now look at the governance side of things and do we need to change your change structure to get there? And so again, that's a whole set of tools and techniques that allows essentially what you see in general, you're replacing managers mm-hmm. who define the overall structure and the governance by a peer-to-peer way of working of people negotiating it amongst each other. That's essentially what all these techniques boil down to. Another example of that, and I think the final one I think was for me the core techniques is sort of those domain canvases is one, the consent decision making is another, and the third one to me was a massive eye-opener is that Sociocracy 3.0 works with two backlogs. It does indeed have a lot of agile techniques it borrows from because it just it says itself it's a blend of these things. So you have your regular operational backlog, but also a governance backlog. And if you look at what is supposed to end up on the governance backlog, it's essentially all the decisions you normally would ask a manager to make. Should you change this? So, and in general, uh, the way James describes it is, it's all decisions that impact future decisions. And it could be anything like, you know, what's our approach going to be? What's the strategy going to be? What's the team structure going to be? Should we fire up a new team? All that kind of stuff. So what you get now, given that you have these whole ways of working, of making the decisions together, and now you have a backlog of sort of like a mechanical mechanical uh, manager where the group becomes the manager together, goes through the governance backlog, and processes all the questions you normally would ask of a manager. And now that's, and if you put all those pieces together, you get this very interesting situation that you get an organizational structure that can evolve itself. And that to me is, it's for me, that is really the next where, if you ask me, what's the next uh, step in Agile, it's this. That sounds crazy. But before diving into <laughs> this, because there are so many loops and things where we can hook into. Jim, yeah. you want to you wanna pitch into this as well? And we got some audience questions. Yeah, Serge, so, uh, two things that feel very related to this, and I'd love to get your thoughts on. One is... Um, what is the relation of silence as concurrence or agreement to sociocracy? Because I, I hear this a lot. I, I hear leaders do it. I hear consultants, teachers, trainers, everybody I interact with um, may say at some point, like, speak up or I am taking you as this. And I, I tend to have a, a problem with that. Um, so I would love to hear your thoughts on that and if it's related. And the other one is, um, as you were talking about this uh, democracy and democratic approach and moving towards consent-based, one of the things that I that bothers me about many teams way, and groups' ways of working is the democratic nature, like whether it's voting on topics for a retrospective or whether it's, you know, this idea of soliciting input from everyone or every group or having a representative at the table before you're able to move forward, that tends to slow down any process. I don't care if it's Kanban scrum or just traditional. Could you kind of relate those two ideas to sociocracy? Well, the first thing is it's not a democracy. That's the interesting bit. It's not, the primacy is not in the most votes. The primacy is in reasoned argument. So a single person can fully override the whole organization if they come with an idea and nobody has a good reason why you should say no. So in that sense, it's not a democracy. It is really, uh, and in that sense, yeah, truly like, you know, say your piece or hold your silence sort of a thing. Um, The interesting bit is, is that where it protects itself with all these methods 
is that one of the questions an objection is tested against is, do you think that between now and the next time we revisit this decision, there will be a danger that's going to be so bad that we can't wait for it now? Because mm. many, many of those things are, yeah, sure. I mean, if I, I feel a risk, I have a bit of a concern. I will talk about concerns as well. But yeah, but yeah, we, we can we can we can look at it for a week or so, or a week two. So boom. So many times, what you see is that when you really get into it, and it's 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 one of those things you have to experience it really to believe it. That's one of those things, is that so many times people come with objections and things and are loud, etc., uh, and then. All of them, no, that's not a valid one. Not valid, not valid, not valid, not valid. And then what you're left with is simply that simple idea that is tested against things. And then, you know, if it's okay, it's okay. Another thing, however, to, to note on that, when somebody has an objection and it's valid, the intent is to integrate. So it's not that you throw away the old idea, but then comes the, okay, but how do we make the new proposal that is both the old and it integrates whatever the objection was of the old. And so you reconstruct it. So you make a tweak or whatever, and then you do the whole thing again. You go like, is there any objection to this one? And so if you get good at it, that goes very fast. And, uh, and I'm yeah. assuming if it's based on people speaking up about a concern that this is not going to have the same impact if people don't feel comfortable speaking up if they have a concern. So there's got to be a relationship on psychological safety and other ideas. Is that absolutely true? Absolutely. One of okay. the main core things is indeed the fact, exactly as you're saying, it does depend on that type of psychological safety to at least you feel safe to speak, speak up. One of the things that is built into sort of the way of, you know, doing the reason decision-making is the, the notion of rounds. The fact that everybody can, can speak up, right? If, if somebody is not naturally somebody who speaks up, there's a ton of things explicitly so to do a round where everybody has a chance, like, do you want to speak? Do you want to speak? Do you want to speak? Sort of you, you keep going around. And if you get efficient at it, you sort of do that pretty quickly. But it does very explicitly say, here's your turn now. Now is your turn to ask a clarifying question. Now is your turn to come with an objection or a thing. What you also do online, you see these hand uh, signals, like the thumbs up is the signal for I agree with this. Then there is the waggling hand, the wiggly hand, kind of like, yeah, I have a concern, but it also means I have a concern. I'd like to talk about it, but it, I don't consider that to be a valid objection. It won't hold it back. So that's, so you even if you have sort of misgivings, but you think like, yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's not something that I'm concerned enough about that I want to make it a full objection. You have an opportunity to do so as well. So then, you know, it may or may not happen that that gets also written down like, or it is a concern or very often like, okay, let's keep a watch on that to make sure it doesn't turn into an objection. And then thumbs down would be, or no, actually not a thumb down. There is the, the, the pattern that we have is an open hand. Like, you know, as you're serving somebody, it's you're offering an objection because the purpose of like also the way in a good sociocratic culture is I'm offering this insight to you that might protect us from, you know, an opportunity. And, and it's a phrase in two ways, like either something that could, could go bad, like the bad version, but also I see an opportunity to make it even better. So in both cases, sort of you're offering a thing and then it gets tested, etc. What I found interesting is that it's very much not a democratic thing because one person can really go like, I really think this is important. And if there's no reason to arguments again, it, they just, it just happens. And it's, there's nothing in any of these methods that most votes count. It just doesn't exist in the whole sociocratic method. Now, listen, you and I, we've been working at a very hierarchical 
traditional culture company before where the hippo or the most dominant person yep. up in the hierarchy is the one who's controlling the majority vote basically and let's say we're here with 10 people and they're all looking at that person to see what's what's their objection what's their thought how do they go through this process mentally yep. or what's the body language how do you prevent such an indirect way of making people biased yeah this is i think comes down to very much personal experience um the f if I look at the way I've approached these situations is because why, from a consultancy perspective, right? Why did they call you in the first place? Like that manager might be the hippo and everybody's looking at the person, but you're brought on board. And if you're specifically brought on board for the whole agile thing, there must be some notion of there is another way to do it. And there must be some notion at least of having an opportunity or being open to change or being open to to behave in a different way. That's because assuming that the people who are hiring us are actually involved in the whole development, which yeah, sure. in, in our experience is not always the case. Uh, so there's no guarantee for this, right? There's no guarantee for success. However, one of the things that I find is that if you talk about change, when people say people are resistant to change, that's nonsense. It just is not true. What the problem is, is people are worried about letting go of their current certainties. That's the big one. So you have a certainty, you have a certain weird way of working, very waterfall, and it gives you predictability and predictability is very important to you. So the first question to ask is to just have the discussion over predictability is important for you. Yes. Okay. Let's establish that. Let's establish that the way you did it now was in this method. Okay. Here's a new way of doing it and getting that same certainty. This is how you do predictability in Agile. That makes people sort of go from one to the other because they know, oh, okay, okay. The thing I'm worried about of losing my current certainties, I can find that in the new method. Just evangelizing the new makes literally no sense. Like I never talk about, I never bash waterfall, for instance, in my agile training ever. It makes no sense. I just talk about what are the things you're trying to achieve with the way you're working right now. Also, assuming that those people are smart, it's just a question of, well, this is the best technique I have right now. Now, taking that analogy to that manager, the first thing I do is then figure out what are the certainties you're trying to take. Of course, many people are very willing and able to give freedom and give power and all those things. But they also have the experience like if I don't behave in a certain way, things fall like sand through my hands. I don't know any other way of achieving control of the situation without behaving the way I do. So then comes the discussion, what are the certainties you're looking for? You're looking for this type of, oh yeah, you need to make sure you deliver. Okay, that's important. This is important, this is important, this is important. This is what it looks like, how you retain control, for instance, of the situation in an agile fashion. This is how you gain feedback. This is how you make sure that everybody's accountable or whatever the thing is that they're worried about. And that's a much more, a better way. Now, if that is, discussion is even not possible because once you're showing the success, having had the discussion of what, what are your current certainties and this is what it looks like in the new situation and even then they're not prepared, it's pretty much game over for a consultant, yeah. right? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, at some point there is a willing, there, you're dependent on the willingness of an organization or a person to do something. Yeah. Jim, what do you think? Yeah, it kind of relates to something we were talking about before, which is people having to be open and people meaning an individual or a group or an organization to doing something new to trying something, having that growth mindset, or at least being open enough to come to the table and consider an alternative. And, you know, that's not as common as I would like. And that may not be the people who bring us in that we are trying to help. Um, 
and I think it can be created. I think it can be changed. Um, but yeah, it's not always easy day one. Yeah. And also what I, I still hear in the, in the way you're phrasing, it's sort of the way it comes across with me is sort of like going from the assumption that people don't want to change and don't. And sort of, for me, it's always like, I fully believe first thing people want to change. People have no problem changing because we do it all the time. We're very flexible creatures. The reason we don't change is always our ecosystem, our environment, it's fear is losing your job, those mm -hmm. things. So uh, yes, psychological safety and all that kind of stuff. And it's very much the system, right? So 90, 95% you go, you walk up to a team, they say those people are a bunch of idiots, help them and make them better. And then you walk around, you look at their impediments list or you analyze what's really going on. And it turns out that two of the problems they can fix themselves and the other 18 are the organizational insanity around them. So many times it's very fundamentally in the ecosystem. So, and, and leaders know this as well, right? And I think in many cases, so, but I also think this is coming from a position of respect and saying, look, I know you've been doing it in a certain way, but you're, you're just doing and using the techniques that, that give you sort of command of the situation the best way you know how. And so that's okay. That's fine. You did, you did, you did your best. And, but I have a new way. And that, like I said, like having people change in that other direction, once you have that respectful discussion with those people like yeah of course you're doing in your situation in your context in the fact that you're being asked to do all the waterfall work because that's what finance asks for you for instance to give all the upfront calculations and blah, blah and so on and so on yeah of course you're doing waterfall style i would it's a, it's a thing I, I say a lot right yeah yeah mm -hmm. i would do it the same way because that's your context what if we could change the context however and that's one of the things really, if you go to where it really, where the buck stops really with upper management, one of the most important questions I ask them is, but are you willing to give it an opportunity? Are you willing to protect that little bubble? Because it is going to be different and it's going to be changed, et cetera. But that is needed. It is needed that you allow a bit of freedom and, and sort of to, to make that change and also protect the people and tell them, look, it's okay, it's fine. You know, change and, and go according to these new rules. And then everybody and everything will change. And then through that proof, you move forward. And so in that sense, yeah. And it has been my strategy for years and years now is sort of getting hyper-practical, figuring out what people need, what their needs are behind the needs, doing something practical, create success and sort of, and then create FOMO, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and create a ton of FOMO when people start moving. Hey, listen, there is a, there's a question coming from the audience and a remark. Let's start with a question by Anita. Have you seen any countries or cultures where sociocracy has failed or it doesn't work? As you mentioned in the beginning, Brazil has their own tweaks, but have you seen any culture, any country where this does not work or it just fails horribly? Yeah. I'll preface it with one thing. Specifically, when we're talking about sociocracy 3.0, it is very much intended and built to be a toolkit. So you don't have to use the whole thing. Holacracy is very different in that regard. It's in that sense, like the safe, we do the whole framework or nothing kind of a thing. Um, uh, I'll, you know, for experienced people, actually there's a nuance there, but you know, that's sort of how it presents itself nowadays. So it does mean that even if you're in a hyper, hyper hierarchical organization, there's still a ton of useful things you can pull from sociocracy. You can actually do the domain canvases and you can actually do that, this sort of negotiation about, but then have a manager be the final uh, arbiter. That still gets you somewhere, right? It's still more useful than nothing. So just with that in, in mind, there's a ton of stuff you can still do in a highly hierarchical organization. Now, however, what I have seen is that this does work better in organizations that have a low power distance, right? If there's a massive power distance and really you're in a culture where 
and it's not just country culture, right? It's also corporate culture. Just you know, in the end, it's about the corporate culture where there is really uh, like, I'm the boss, you have to listen to me, you have to listen to what I say, etc. cetera. Uh, yeah, then you have challenges, right? Because that's the way they work. Even then, one of the things I've always found, found very interesting about, for instance, India and my Indian colleagues is that the potential is always there, especially Indian people like my Indian colleagues. If they're in the Indian context, you see sort of a different behavior where people are very collective and, and work together and might behave hierarchically because sort of that's the smell of the air, the smell of the place, right? That's that, that quote, smell of the place. And you take that same colleague and they're in Europe and they're the most proactive person ever. It was always there. And I've seen this over and over and over again. So that's also interesting in that what makes my colleagues from India behave in a certain context in a certain way and much more sort of, you know, forgiving and taking contact, taking orders and you take them here to the Netherlands and all of a sudden, you know, they're just like, you're like, hmm. you're like me, right? There was no difference. No. And it wasn't there to begin. So that was a big lesson to me. So in that regard, yes. To, to, so to finally answer the, sort of the question most directly, yes, there is definitely uh, challenges we've seen there and they all have to do with power distance and so it's a fundamentally a leadership problem. To what extent will leadership allow sort of the delegation of this power into the organization? Yeah. Looking at Jim and, and for you both for this, uh, Lena mentions there, there can be no change without some kind of con continuity supporting what you're saying here. Um, and that definitely, uh, that's definitely part of the psychological safety grounds to set up beforehand. You, you both work as consultants. How do you deal with this? How do you create such an environment of psychological safety, especially uh, with the very short-term thinking that a lot of our clients are employing? So how do we create, in a sort of a pressure cooker, create some sense of psychological safety? For me, I tend to start talking about it right away. So I drop the term psychological safety and ask people, have you heard that before? How would you define it? What does it mean to you? And then we go out and we, we put some uh, details around that. We might go look and talk about, you know, Dr. Amy Edmondson's books. We might look at the surveys online. I have a survey that I send out and we, we start to talk about the idea. And then that gives me a platform to, when I see something that may kind of indicate less psychological safety, we can talk about it. I think, so that's kind of the initial response I have to your question around the continuity, the biggest uh, fear, and this is more of an assumption, um, it, it's maybe an unrealized fear, is that when we are changing, we are going to have to get rid of everything that we're doing, everything that's got us here. And part of my messaging around that is, no, if it's working, we're not going to get rid of it. Just because I'm here, just because a consultant's here to help us with something doesn't mean everything that you hold true or the way that you've been working for years is going to just go out the window. And we're going to start over. So it's more about evolution than it is wholesale change. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Serge? Um, so my case, like the first discussion is to have with, uh, this is very fundamentally a leadership problem because that psychological safety is, it's, it's like parenting, right? Um, where, how safe do your kids feel if they have a parent that is very unclear about what the rules are. But it, it's a, so, so there's an interesting thing here where hierarchy can actually give freedom. So hierarchy in and of itself is not evil. Like for me, that's also one of the, my standard quotes I have when I consult is hierarchy isn't a bad thing. It's micromanagement. 
it's not saying like in general, if you have somebody who's responsible for an overall, like I said, let's say a product owner for a team of teams, right? There's a hierarchy there because that product owner says overall direction and all the other product owners inside that structure say, okay, we have to take direction from the overall. That is a hierarchy, right? Why don't we consider that to be totally and epically evil? Yeah. Because it's sort of a more healthy way to, to implement the structural hierarchy instead of saying, I'm going to now tell you how to do your job exactly and I'm going to tell you the activities, et cetera. So there's a, there's a big nuance there. So psychological safety and actually another lesson that has there for taking for there's ways of doing your leadership and there's ways of sort of dealing with power and the questions of power in a more mature way or a more healthy way. So an interesting lesson I learned when you read the books by Taichi Ono, the Toyota production system book thinks specifically how that I thought I'm going to now read a book about a enlightened Zen leader and he's going to say very Zen things and being relaxed about <laughs> everything. If you read the book, he's constantly saying things like, I scolded this person, I scolded that person. And so sort of, I was like, hey, this is not a nice guy. He's actually, you know, so the, the, and then something struck me is that sort of what happened sort of in the Japanese way or maybe the Toyota way is that they disconnected hierarchy from micromanagement. So the way I tell it nowadays is sort of, a manager then says to a team, I order you to self-organize. Now, here's an interesting thing. Because you have hierarchically ordered somebody to do, the order gives the psychological safety because it, it sets a very clear boundary. Here's a boundary. You're not allowed to go over it, etc. But it also creates space. By giving people, by ordering to say, here is your boundary and thou shalt do it. If you order somebody to self-organize, there is a very interesting sort of you know, paradox maybe for some people initially, is like, oh, I have to self-organize. Okay, so I'm doing so. In doing so, I have made it safe to self-organize because my boss told me to. Yeah. That's a weird dynamic, right? And so here is one of the things, is, at least in starting, there's two techniques I therefore use for this, especially when it's there's fear. I have this discussion with leadership and say to them initially, just order them to self-organize, tell them very clearly what their boundaries are and put them super wide. And really say, here, this is your playground. And sort of, and then in that sense, if it's an old hierarchical culture, you know, maybe for, because it also is very scary. And that's also the other thing I've seen so many times. And and quote unquote, enlightened manager says, okay, I'm going to do it differently now. And they sort of silently pull away, basically pulling a vacuum. And nobody knows what to do anymore. Because everybody's sort of like, yeah, I, I got all these assignments. I don't know what to do. What's my direction? Uh, and then manager says, see, they need my direction, comes back in again, takes control. So... That's one part. The other part is again those domain canvases. What I've seen happen is if you explicitly negotiate around what those responsibilities are for a team, for instance, the team can point at it and go, it's like, you've given us this power. And that was also interesting because I also was at another co 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 company and their old guard would tend to just walk over everybody's responsibilities and everybody would take it because it wasn't really clearly defined what those responsibilities were. By the time we had all those canvases laid out, the team would point at it to go like, did you or did you not give us this responsibility? And they said, well, yes. Did we or did we not agree that this would be something that we for us to decide? Yes, we did. So thank you very much. It's our decision now. So within that formal agreement, they created the space. And so those would be the two things that I would so therefore advise is sort of the, I order you to self-organize trick. Yeah. And the domain canvases to, and so in there, in so doing, you create space that very paradoxically creates a psychological safety in hierarchical environment. Assuming that people will not have to fear the repercussions 
resulting from this because I've seen that happening as well where any given higher manager says you're going to be self-organizing good luck they do so and then get scolded for the results so uh, a good question coming from Lena is how to facilitate these kind of discussions do you go for one-on-ones do you go for liberating structures or as you mentioned uh, maybe establish a sort of, some sort of a golden rule or is there w ways of working is there any way because I can imagine that you would tailor this sort of feeling how the yeah. egos would be set in place with this question the first thing that pops into my head is the impediments list the first thing again from my my conviction that the reason the team is slow is not the team itself but it's the organizational sanity around them it will be the impediments list if you do it right like one of the things i'm doing on my current customer i'm teaching literally everybody good root cause analysis because one of the problems with the standard retrospective it's it's wide broad spectrum it is like, let's do a broad spectrum. What's everything that went right and well, et cetera, et cetera. But there's never really sort of the deeper five whys kind of, you know, the whole technique that goes with it. And so with that deeper uh, five why stuff, when people really get down into the weeds in like what's going on here, then you have a list to give to the management and saying, this is the reason your team is slow. It's all context. It's all the environment. And by the way, who is responsible for that environment? It's the manager. So... One of the things, therefore, that I found works super effectively is sort of turn the tables in a good way, right? Because you're basically saying this is where the main slowdown problems are. They're in the environment. You're responsible for the problem uh, for the environment. I also tell Scrum Masters, you are therefore the product owners of the backlog of pain, right? Ordered by pain. And so then the manager's job becomes like, you know, just be quiet. Look at the list. Look at the top one. Go fix. And now you have a, a thing to hold management accountable to their performance in the ability to resolve impediments yeah so that creates a very different dynamic and sort of showing the fact that the reason the team is slow with your data and your impediments list that is due to all the other factors around it that would be my tool of choice jim i saw you nodding i guess this is relatable to you you agree with this yeah, um, this impediments list, one of the engagements I had a few years ago, it was excellent for a variety of reasons. But one of the things that really set it apart for me was there was 14 teams working on this platform on a single floor, uh, actually over two floors. But leadership of the, of the program and of the products at play had their own impediment backlog, their own impediment board. They stood in front of it. They talked about it. They had their own uh, daily scrum, if you will, what they were doing wasn't exactly scrum or exactly anything, but it worked. And it was so powerful because people could see them moving impediments that the teams were raising and addressing them. And when leadership said, we can actually progress on that, or the, we've, we've asked, the answer is no, it, it, it felt better because even though the answer was no, or they had to say, we are not able to address this impediment in any meaningful way right now, or maybe ever, the, the visibility, the transparency, the camaraderie was amazing. So I have tried and am currently trying to replicate kind of this idea of leaders visualizing the impediments and what they're doing to help others. And I, I think that's great that sociocracy you know, makes that a core practice. Yeah. Yeah. To be clear, my core expertise, I'm, I'm sort of in, in sense of like, you know, for people who can't see me, I have a lot of gray hair. Uh, so I've been around. 
And so still up until this day, sort of my basic go-to is Scrum. That's sort of where I come from. Um, my framework of choice that I've always used, uh, because I've co-trained with Jeff Sutherland for about 13 years uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, so therefore, Scrum at Scale is sort of the framework I you know, just sort of naturally gravitated to. Uh, and I've always been using Kanban or Lean techniques in, in my work. Uh, actually, you know, one of the sort of big things I have with Mr. Anderson is that I believe he created a, div a device between a group of people that were very much the same. The Lean and Kanban crowd and the Agile crowd in the olden days was one crowd. And he just split it because, well, Kanban is better or whatever. And he started sort of, you know, I still resent him to this day for that action. Um, because it's one thing, it's, it's a set of techniques, etc. And sociocracy is sort of part of the toolbox. So to be very clear, I'm not a sociocracy guy, I'm an agile guy. And I use Scrum and Kanban and Lean and sociocracy, uh, the whole thing together in sort of a blend of, of, of a way of working and practicality that I think is, is in the end the answer. And so, yeah, like, like for instance, with the, uh, you know, so should we use a blend of scrum teams and Kanban teams? Yes, of course. Right. Because there's teams who fit for whom the cadence fits better than the others. Should we use sociocracy in its full form everywhere? Well, maybe not. Maybe there's like one team of teams where that works very well. Another where it doesn't. So, um, I think if you use those techniques, there is very much a possibility of using a mix and match it, for instance, to be really clear, sociocracy doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing. It definitely does not have to be. No, and I think that's one of the most powerful things that I've seen yeah. from working with you. You're incredibly pragmatic. Mm -hmm. There are so many people who are scrum police or they think that Kanban is the, the only evangelism, the only te technique that we can employ. But you take that out of the equation and see what can we do here and in what way and how can we tailor that to the needs of the customer and so on. Uh, yeah. Now, looking at the time we're coming to an end, we have a hard stop. If there is anyone listening and think this is super interesting, I want would like to start experimenting with sociocracy. What would you advise them to start with? Well, the the main source is sociocracy30.org. That's the site. Um, it's where James and Lily, um, you know, post it, etc. They're also quite active, and I can really advise doing their courses. They're very good. Um, they have an online version that you can just, you know, follow. They're very engaged in it. And, um, I also like both Lily and James for their teaching ability. They're very good at it. And, um, I've learned like a ton. So yeah, that's as far as books and things like that, there is not that much. Um, what you can see if you, if you know a little bit about the sociocratic uh, circle method, if you know a little bit about holacracy, but also things like deep democracy, they all sort of fit in the same family. So if you're interested in sort of like a wider, um, so exploration of the topic, if you can grab hold of some of those resources, I think those have a lot of inspiration as well. All right. Sweet. Jim, any last comments, questions from your side? No. No. So, thank you so much, uh, Serge, for bringing this to us. And um, can't wait to dig into it and hopefully talk to you more in the future. Yeah, sure. We'll Definitely will. Serge, thank you so much. Audience, thank you so much for being here with us. If you have more questions, let us know. Again, we have the, the mural board, the Mastering Agility mural board. Um, keep us updated there on your feedback. Any questions, any potential future guests. Serge, thank you so much, man. You're welcome. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button. 
share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, or joining our warm and welcoming Discord community. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility podcast.